Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. My Aunt Maybell was a hardworking, proud woman. She used to say, I too, when she agreed with someone, when she was on board with what they were saying and the idea or the plan that they had. Now, for some reason, over the past five or so years, I've adopted the phrase myself when I agreed with friends, especially if they knew my aunt before she passed away and they had heard her use the phrase, I too. Now, recently, protests and movements against racism, sexism, and discrimination generally, and my Aunt Maybell, inspired me to adopt the phrase, the mantra, I too, I too can and will do more. Today, as you might expect, the topic is law enforcement. What can be done to eliminate the criminal, inhumane conduct by law enforcement that we've witnessed in the media? What can we do to recognize and show appreciation for the law enforcement officers and management personnel who perform their jobs well? John Arnold Jr. is my guest today. Among other things, Director Arnold is the former Deputy Police Director of the Newark, New Jersey Police Department, and former captain of detectives of the Essex County, New Jersey Prosecutor's Office. He is also an ordained pastor with the Church of God in Christ. Welcome, Pastor Arnold. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Sir, I'm tired of crying. I'm tired of being angry. And I'm tired of seeing these horrific images in the media. Can you help our listeners and me understand how a law enforcement professional could deteriorate into a being that could treat people as inhumanely and criminally as George Floyd was treated. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. Hello to your listeners. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. The same feelings that you just expressed to all of the men and women who take their jobs seriously in law enforcement, who go put on the uniform proudly, we too share your sentiments. We share your feelings. We have a problem when our badge is tarnished by such acts as we saw, such atrocities as we saw with the murder of George Floyd. And one of the things that I would say is that when you talk about police officers turning into these monsters that we've seen, not only in Minneapolis, but even after George Floyd still going on, 
one of the issues that we have to look at is their training. Their training, we have to look at the training, we have to look at their disciplinary process within the departments, and we have to look at the situations that are taking place in the community, the lack of relationship between the law enforcement department and the community. So there's several factors that we have to look at and we evaluate, which is part of police reform that then President Obama and Attorney General Eric Holder had put in place across the nation. But since this administration has come in, has basically put it on the shelf or put it in the trash bin. And now these departments are working like without any type of rope to pull them in. This is the reaction of what you're seeing. This is the results of what you're seeing. You know, I understand as an HR professional, at least in one of my professions, I understand the benefits and the need for training. But I also realize that before you train, you hire. And it seems to me that recruitment and hiring, those functions need to be reviewed closely because there's a disconnect somewhere. Are the right people being hired? Everyone who wants to be a law enforcement officer is not equipped, let's put it that way, is not equipped to handle the job as effectively and as competently as we need them to. And we need to make sure, however we can, that they don't get the job, they don't get the gun, they don't get the authority to abuse people. Yes, that's absolutely right. One of the things that happens in the recruitment process of prospective police officers is that they have to go through a criminal background check. And once they go through a background check, they go through an interview with the uh, investigating detective, maybe a board in some departments, but also they have to go through a psychological evaluation. And what I found was sitting on a certain number of transition teams of new administrations coming in, new mayors coming in, uh, was allowed to sit on the transition team. We found that some departments within the department, because of the systemic racism in those departments, there were people who had the power to accept or reject applicants from the community who were the right fit. No one knows their community better in policing than someone from the community. When I became a police officer, I lived in the city of Newark. So quite naturally, I wasn't interested in any other police department outside of Newark. I wanted to be a Newark officer. It just so happened that after a couple of years on the job, I went to the county, which included Newark, which I was okay with. But I really didn't want to work with any other department because deep in my heart, I wanted to help the people of Newark in my community, specifically my community. So when you have a person that is denying people like myself who would be in my position, you get the other type of candidates coming in from the suburbs and from other towns who really don't have an invested interest in the community. And a lot of times we found that these particular officers were the reason for the problems in the community. And a lot of the incoming mayors realized that and demanded that police officers from the community be given first preference when they were hiring. So that's the, the way it's going to change is from the top, from the top with the police director or public safety director and the mayors that we elect and put in office. That's the way it's going to change. Do, in Newark, do the police officers, are they civil service? Yes. Most of your departments in the four major cities, all of the, your departments in the four major cities and surrounding towns are civil service. There are some towns in New Jersey who have what they call the chief's test, which is a completely different test. They have similar civil service rules, but their ultimate power is lies in the hands of the chief or the director of the department. 
So it's a little bit different. Now, why is there a distinction? Why is there that difference? It's just the uh, preference of the town. It comes down to voting. And some people decided to go into civil service. But, you know, because there was a lot of police officers and you had a lot of people who said we want civil service because it gave fairness and opportunity to those who, you know, not allowed to have it. But then you have some small towns who they want complete power over who they hire, how who they promote and how things are done in their town. So that's why you have the two different type of systems. Well, I know from working in in several different jurisdictions that there's a good amount of nepotism that is found in law enforcement. Correct. And in fact, if I remember correctly, your father was it is a police officer or, or was before he retired, wasn't he? Yes, he was. A, he served the city of Newark 25 years. He retired as a lieutenant in the city of Newark for the Newark Police Department. So now as far as recruiting goes, how do you recruit? I remember I saw Val Demings, a congresswoman from Florida, and she said that she was recruited. She ultimately became, I think, chief of police of Orlando Police Department, if I'm not mistaken. But she was recruited. She said they came looking for her. That was a good hire, obviously. Yes, yes. We need to have some more hires like that <laughs> across the country. Yeah. You know, I, it sounded like there was a concerted effort to go out and find the best qualified people to join the police force in her jurisdiction. Right, right. Yeah, in some jurisdictions, that would be like the benefit of having the chief's test as opposed to civil service. Because civil service, if I'm ranked number 50 on the civil service list and they're looking for 30 officers, I'm not going to get the job. <laughs> so I might be better qualified and everything like that, except for I didn't, maybe I didn't just have a good day taking the test. But I live in the city. I have connections to the city. I, I would be the perfect candidate for a police officer in the city. But the fact of the matter is, is that those who went to school, I mean, those who went to courses who are really high on the test and with civil service, you have to go from the ranking on the test. So even if you wanted me, unless you were going to hire above what your budget is and I was number 50 and you only had 30 spots, you would have to hire additional 20 officers just to get to me. And that's not happening in these towns with the type of budgets that they have. Yes. I, you know, I'm familiar with civil service and how that works and how civil service in many instances is circumvented. Yes. It's almost like sleight of hand. Yes. There are ways of, to maneuver around the requirements. And if you don't know how to do it, you don't get it done. Exactly. But exactly. people who've been entrenched for years know how to do it. And, and that's one of the reasons we found that they were knocking off members of the community who were applicants for police departments because they wanted to get to their nephew or their cousin who didn't live in the town, but was on the civil service list. So they wanted, that's what they wanted to do. So they would, let's say they would knock me out. Or let's say I was number 20 and the person they wanted was number 21. So you disqualify me, you muddy me and tell me yeah. because of something in my background or uh, psychological or something like that, I didn't make the cut. So I, they can't hire me. So now by the time I appeal, and go back. They've already put the class in and that officer, that person is already on the job in the department. And we found in Newark that even the psychiatrist who was evaluating a lot of the officers, African-American officers that we were applicants that we were sending to him, he was disqualifying them. 
And then, so the mayor said, no, I want to use somebody else. I just don't, I have a bad feeling about it. And when he changed the psychiatrist, the doctor who was doing evaluations, they found out that it was some funny business going on because everyone who was knocked down by this particular psychiatrist who appealed and went to another psychiatrist passed the psych. So that tells you right there that it's systemic and it's been going on for a while. Absolutely. Listen, I'm going to, if you're paying my bills, I'm going to do what you asked me to do. I mean, exactly. that's how it is. So that, that's what we were faced with a lot of departments in the inner city. No, as I said, I know from experience working in various jurisdictions that you have to peel back the onion, look at the layers to see where people's, oh, what do I call it? Loyalties? Loyalties, yes. Indebtedness lie. There are all kinds of connections that permeate municipalities. Mm -hmm. It's not just law enforcement. It's jurisdictions. Yes, jurisdictions. Jurisdictions. That's right. That's right. What can the average person do? What could I do to make a difference? I mean, I'm sitting home. I'm watching it. I've got things to do. I'm writing a new book. I'm doing these podcasts. Mm -hmm. You know, my focus is on employment because, you know, with this pandemic, There's going to be a lot of people out of work. Yes. Yes. Well, there, there's strength in numbers. And um, I'll say that because when I became the um, deputy director of Newark, the power of the community, especially our community, is very strong. But for some reason, we don't mobilize. We don't organize. We don't strategize. And then we don't execute. What we did was we took the top administration officials, myself, Director Venable, the chief of the police, uh, Anthony Campos. And we went out into the streets and it was because that's when they did the different committees. The mayor did the the mayor, Baraka did the different committees. The people said, we don't see the cops out here. We want to get to the top. We want to talk to the top. And that was one of the demands that the community groups came together and started putting together. And that was the result. That's why we were walking twice a week in different areas, especially hotspot areas. So that same principle in these times, the person said, oh, I'm just one person. No. You connect with someone else. I used to come in in the morning and we had what we called, it was a a Newark app for neighborhoods. It was sort of like Facebook, but Mm -hmm. only the people on your street had access to it. So I would get the the whole entire city, but any type of complaints, any type of issues that was sent directly to me, I got it. And I was able to call the precinct and say, listen, captain, I need you to uh, have someone address this issue from, you know, 300 South street or whatever. And if that, those things weren't done, <laughs> if those if that response wasn't given, if it went right to the mayor and the mayor called the director and the director called us and, you know, hey, we, we got chewed out. So the persistency of the community, the power of the community is you just have to organize and you have to challenge things like we're doing now. Like these kids now, I give them credit. The young people are challenging what's being done. They're challenging law enforcement for a lot of years. My generation didn't do it like they're doing it. And because they're challenging, they're pulling things out and people are seeing it around the world. So I wouldn't want to be in a position in the, of a city that has issues with community and policing and have cops doing the things that, I, that we see on TV right now, because the power of the people right now is so strong that change is going to come. Social media makes a difference. There's no question about oh that. Oh, my God. Absolutely right. They have their own Social media. I mean, what we see on TV is one thing, but their own social media networks is is bananas. They are really 
connecting and informing one another. And that's what that's what we have to do. <laughs> that's what we have to do. Those of us who are still want to participate and make a change and make a difference in our communities. Well, I saw Mayor Baraka on um, a show last week and he was talking about the consent decree in Newark. Yes. He talked about the improvements that have been made. And I pulled up the consent decree yes. and it was 77 pages, so I didn't read it all. Right. Right. Instead, he referred to touches, community touches. He mm-hmm. said they increased community touches between right. the police officers and the community. Police officers are going out into the community and interacting with the residents, with yeah. the people in the community. So that heightens the involvement of both parties. Yes. yes. And it builds a relationship. And relationships, I don't care what you do. I don't mm-hmm. care what job you have. Relationships right. are critical. Right. Right. Before the consent decree came to Newark, as a matter of fact, it came when Mayor Baraka had just switched over to a public safety director, which eliminated the position of police director and deputy police director, fire director. It was a, something that he did. And um, what it did was consolidate his services. But before the consent decree, I was the deputy director over community affairs and clergy affairs. First time that you had a deputy director who was in charge of those units, as well as some other units that were you know, criminal investigation units. And at the time that we were there, there was the Michael Brown incident. And we understood that they were, they were rioting. They weren't peacefully protesting. They were rioting all throughout the nation, some peaceful protest. And what we did was we called up the, we developed a relationship with our community because we had been out there walking the streets. The mayor himself was out there, but we were out there. And uh, we developed a relationship, a trusting relationship with the community. And we called the community leaders. We called the clergy and we said, listen, we're going to send officers with you to secure you while you're marching. They were surprised at that because they said no one has ever done that for them. They said, no. I said, you have a right to protest. We respect your right to protest. We're going to send officers to block streets for you to make sure that there's no nonsense going on to protect you. The only thing we're going to tell you is, is that we will ask you to control the people who are marching with you. We don't, we have an obligation to protect our business owners and people who come into the city to work. And we will be enforcing that. But other than that, let's go do it. And the director and myself, we attended some of these rallies calling for police reform, calling for a consent decree because we welcomed consent decree because we felt we looked at it differently. We said, wait a minute, this is going to help make our department a better department. It identified issues within the department that were true. You could not deny it. it was before we came on board. But you could not deny it because these were actual findings that the FBI found out. And what they did was they said, these are the issues and this is what we have to do. We said, we welcome it. We welcome the cameras. We welcome the community outreach. We welcome this. We out and thank you, you know, for coming in and telling us. So I sat on the drafting of the consent decree and interviewed the uh, federal monitor, the people who are applying for the federal monitorships for the city of Newark. And before I left, it was still being completed. But now, as I read the uh, consent decree, it's great. It's only going to make Newark a greater police department. And a lot of the officers at first, they were they were skeptical about wearing the cameras. I said, wait a minute, the cameras are going to help prove what you're telling us. You're telling us that people are making allegations against you because they want to get out of a ticket. They want to get out of an arrest. So they say, oh, the officer did that. Okay, now it's on camera. So you should embrace the cameras. And a lot of officers saw it that way and said, you know, director, I'm I'm just doing my job, but they don't want to get they don't want the ticket. 
I said, well, now you have the cameras. So now let the judge decide. You know, it's working out well. So when we did have an incident during the Michael Ferguson protest, we had an incident where a white superior officer got into a chase with a suspect who was, who was black male, shot the black male, and I believe he'd expired. And um, there were no no alarms throughout the city because of the relationship, like you said, the relationship that the police and the community had. So it was a smooth, we, we explained what went on, we showed them what happened, we talked to them as much as we could, and then um, it was, there were no problems. And actually, it, it fostered the relationship, people were okay with it. So I, I agree with you, relationship is very important. Well, you know, the reason the Mayor Baraka was MSNBC program was yeah. because Newark is being identified, has been identified as not having any police related problems during this, all this upheaval. Yes. It's okay, look at Newark. There's yeah. nothing going on in Newark. Newark yeah. is, they're moving about. They're not yeah. moving about in Newark. They're doing it someplace else. And when you hear the mayor talk about the experience and that they've had since the consent decree was in place, put in place, yes. it works. So it, it seems to me that's a tool yes. that could be used. I wouldn't presume I'm not in law enforcement. I do human resources. I do labor and employment. I negotiate contracts, arbitrate. Yes. I'm an arbitrator. That's yes. my side of it. That's why. I had to think of how I could uh, get information out to people mm-hmm. and consistent with what I'm trying to do long term. Yes. And, and this has just been great. It's given me information and I hope it gives other people information. Now, do you think that consent decrees across the board is a good next step? in these jurisdictions that have surfaced, bubbled up? Yeah. You know, I just wanted to go back to Newark, what you said about Newark, just real quick, because I was very interested in that. Because in Newark, there was a peaceful protest with Larry Ham and the People's Organization of Progress, which the mayor participated in. And you are absolutely right. There were maybe several hundred people, if not thousands, that did a protest and everything was well. After that protest, some antagonizers came into the city of Newark and went to what is the first precinct, which is the Old West District, where we know the 67 riots broke out. So it's very it's very sensitive to African-American people because some people died in, in that area. Was that Orange Avenue? That's on, on 17th Avenue. On 17th. 17th Avenue. But it used to be uh, right, right across from um, Prince Street, the Prince Street okay. Projects. And we had some antagonizers there that went there. They took a knife out and they put holes in four police cars. They jumped on top of the police car. They climbed on top of the... Uh, precinct. So Newark responded. They came out and they they held their guard. The community activists who were there said that these antagonizers were pushing, like getting up on the police and pushing them. And that's right there is a charge. But the police did not take action because you have the discretion to make the arrest. And making the arrest is what they wanted. They wanted to have an aggravated situation. It wasn't life threatening to the officers. So there was just a little bit of uh, putting the stick up and keeping them at bay, right? But they went through the whole incident. The community came to the precinct and started challenging these antagonists. Where are you from? They were from North Arlington. They were from Homedale. They were from all these other places. And the community said to them, well, you better get out of here because this is our town and you're not going to burn it up and you have to get down to Penn Station. <laughs> so you best get out of here. And with them couple of hours, the crowd dispersed. And that's why there were no real incidents in Newark. 
You now, know? see, that didn't come out in his interview. No, that didn't come out. And a lot of times, you know, it was because of Facebook, the social media. And what happened was the young people started communicating via social media to other young people. And they said, oh, y'all want to come down here and protest now? Okay, we got somebody for you. Now, you know, I grew up in the hood and um, I know who I need to call when I need something handled when I was little, when I was young and I needed some backup. And, you know, these kids nowadays, man, they have armament. So the kids that were there were like, listen, you know, we better get out of here. And they left and there were no incident and it de-escalated. And they had some other marches, peaceful protests. Matter of fact, there's one going on at five o'clock today. But it's like the relationship between the community. So now to answer your question about the consent decree, uh, consent decrees are usually anywhere from five to seven years. The reason why a lot of towns balk about them is because it costs millions of dollars to do a consent decree, to be in a consent decree and come out of it. But if your town is identified as having issues with the community, your assaults by police officers are up, your arrest, you know, there's type of corruption that's going on with police officers. The town should demand a federal monitor and a consent decree. The problem is the towns that were scheduled to have consent decrees when, um, as I said before, when the administration came, Trump administration came in, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, was not for consent decrees. So he stopped, he scaled back and basically threw the whole plan of for police reform in the trash. So now these departments saw that they got him emboldened. They're like, oh, well, we can just continue doing what we were doing. And that's what you have in some of these towns. And this is the result of not having a consent decree and not trying to bring police reform on your own. We started in Newark the minute uh, Mayor Baraka took power as mayor. He said, I want this instituted. I want these things done here because he was already a community activist before he was mayor. And, you know, that's another thing. I saw another interview on a different show where a minister was talking about the riots of the 60s in Newark and how it was so well organized that Mm -hmm. they had leaders, that leaders had been identified and, and the people that were the protesters knew who their leaders were and they knew who to get in touch with if anything happened, whether it was getting locked up or being taunted. If you were having problems, you had to get in touch with your leader and your leaders stuck close to you. And I thought about that. I said, wow, that was, as they say, those yes, were the those days. Were the, days. <laughs> yep. the impression I get from hearing some people is that there wasn't anything done until this time. But when I sit in my office and I look at, I have posters of Brown versus Board of Education. I have a poster of Justice Thurgood Marshall. And one of my dearest friends, long-term friends, Wade Henderson, has been a civil rights activist since he graduated from law school. I'm like, we've always, whenever there's been an issue, we fought. Yes. That you have to keep fighting. Yes, yes. You know, there is no rest for the weary. You just get up and continue fighting. That's right. The jobs that I've had, I wouldn't have had. I stood on the shoulders of the Thurgood Marshals and the people who marched so that we got Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. The civil rights movement. I mean, affirmative action that is has turned out in some people's mind to be a dirty phrase. Yes, I know. I know with some degree of certainty, it meant an opportunity for me. 
I would not have otherwise had. It was up to me to make the most of the opportunity. But without affirmative action, without the civil rights legislation, without the work of friends like Wade Henderson, what happened today, what we're going through now, it just wouldn't have taken place like this. Yes, yes. They would have had much, 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 much more work to do. Yes, and you're absolutely right. And I think that what we're starting to see is the resurgence of leaders who are coming out from the younger generations. Yes. Now, we, we know that they, we have our Al Sharptons, our Louis Farrakhan's, you have others who are out there who are, are speaking out for people of color uh, about injustices against them. But now you're starting to see younger people who are actually uh, getting an audience. You're starting to see them. But the thing is, is that when we, people will go to foreign lands, our military will go to foreign lands and fight tirelessly. I remember when I was in the Corps, we used to train tirelessly. We used to, we, they used to make us train and get by just on an hour's sleep and still want us to be able to function because as you said, there's no, no sleep for the weary. We had to keep performing. And I would say to each and everyone who really cares about the community that although sometimes it looks hopeless, all you have is hope. You cannot stop. You have to keep going. I don't care what it is. You know, I, if I believe, if you believe in a cause, die for that cause, you know, die fighting for that cause. And if you really love people, if you have a servant, some of us are, are just giving the gift of servitude. We're just, God has blessed the nation, the world with servants. Those people go out. We don't care about getting tired. We don't care about what it looks like. We keep fighting. We keep fighting until we take our last breath. And, and that's and that is because of that mentality that has been in our, our communities for years. That's why I got into the prosecutor's office for people who went before me, who who were standing yeah. on their shoulders. And now I stood on their shoulders and I try to pull people up. And I think that's, that that's what we have to continue to do, because the prosecutor's office was one of the most racist offices in the state. And when we had uh, Herbert Tate, who was the first black prosecutor, when he had was the first one to open the door. I remember. Yes, he came in. But man, the attacks that he suffered, the attacks that that we suffered as his appointees, because he went out and recruited. He recruited the best officers to come in and work what he wanted to, his special project was narcotic major case to bring down the tremendous amount of murders and narcotics that were in Essex County. And we did that job without being indicted for stealing drugs for without being indicted for abusing people who we arrested. You know, we did that job because he handpicked us. He knew what he was looking for. And he ha- he had a team and they said, this is what I want. Don't bring anyone else here. That's not like that doesn't fit into this box. And when we got together and we worked as a team, we because we have a like mindset, we just flowed and we excelled. And we we showed we were the model for the state as far as narcotics units within the prosecutor's offices. We were the model throughout the state. And you can't tell me that effective policing cannot be done without brutalizing citizens, without without being corrupt, without taking people's lives. Can I just say this real quick and then I'll move on? Joyce Ann Carnegie murder, which was in 2000, I spoke of before. There were two things going on. The reason why that murder investigation was dubbed like the Keystone Cops was because there was two factions fighting. There was a faction who was against a female prosecutor especially a black female prosecutor, and we're trying to 
uh, make her look bad and try to solve the case. And what they did was while we were investigating the case, they decided that they were going to do it their way. And their way mean they were, they broke the law. They forced the investigate the um, identification of the suspect. They locked up the wrong individual. And then the state police had came and beat the individual up. So oh, here wow. it is. I get to work. Uh, it was a Saturday. I said, wait a minute. What happened? I said, how'd y'all get murder warrants? Oh, we got me a death. How'd you make, who'd you make that identification for? So when I called my detect, my uh, lieutenants who were working that night, they said, we need to talk to you, Cap. I said, well, what's up? They said, they forced the ID. So here it is. That night, you had a murderer and you had the person they locked up. They looked almost identical, but the, the witnesses who we built the case on said, this, it looks like him, but it's not him. And I don't feel comfortable identifying. But we had some officers that detectives that went in there and said, this is the guy, right? And looked at him and forced him. Now, here it is, young black victims of a crime, of a robbery, being forced to identify someone who they just said did not do it. They weren't sure that he did it. He looked like the guy, but he didn't do it. And then they go arrest him. They get arrest warrants on him, bust in his house, beat him up, bring him back to the office, find out he's the wrong guy. So, so now what do you do? So the prosecutor at the time, um, they will go, she said, okay, I want a two prong investigation. I want you to exonerate the one that you locked up illegally. And I want you to continue finding out who the suspect is. Now we sat there for two hours and spoke to the star ledger and basically gave them the investigation from A to Z and they still didn't print it. <laughs> they printed it the wrong way because of why that wouldn't have made any, uh, any news. That would have been like, okay, wait a minute, something else is going on here. So we did find the right individual. We did bring him in. We, we got a full confession from him. We did not beat him up. We did not get it, obtain it under duress. We did not do any of those things. We just did good, effective police work. And we got the suspect and brought him to justice and he's serving time now. Not one scratch was on his body when he was arrested. So you can't tell me that you cannot do uh, good police work without uh, jeopardizing other people's lives and corrupting uh, and tarnishing the badge that, that many wear on their chest so proud. No, I, you know, there has to be a way. There, if there yeah. isn't a way, there's something wrong. That's right. That's right. There is just something drastically wrong. Well, we're about out of time. Is there anything you want to say to our, our listeners? You want to leave them a message? Hopefully you'll, if I'm able to invite you back, you'll, you'll come because yes. I don't think this is going to go away, sir. No, we, you know, it's not going to go away. And what I would say is to your listeners is that we're in this together. Law enforcement is in this together. I moved on. I'm in the healthcare industry, but I'm still working with law enforcement very carefully because I see the importance of having law enforcement to keep maintain order in the land. However, I would have your your listeners to strategically mobilize and execute their plan and go to the powers to be and say, this is the changes that we want and stay on it. Don't go out there and Make a little bit of noise. If you're really serious, you have to make sure that you have meetings with the leaders of your police departments and your public safety departments. And the big thing is accountability. Say, we want to know 
what your plan is in the case of, of an officer who goes rogue and and this and that. And let that administrator or that chief or that director explain it to you. And if they don't bring you the right answers, then you need to start talking to the mayor or the powers of being and say, okay, we need change. And we want reform. We want some type of reform. We want these issues identified and addressed now. And don't and don't let your foot off their neck. That's what I would tell you. That's I'm only saying that because that's how it was. That that's those are the conditions I had to work under, and I didn't mind because I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. So if you don't have that type of um, leadership in your local police department that cares about you that much to make change and want to make change in your community, you need to start looking for new police chiefs and new directors. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. You know, I appreciate that you did this with relatively short notice. And I apologize for the earlier confusion. Thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.